Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 88, air date January 7th, 2016. Hello, everyone. A very warm good evening to all of you here. Uh, myself, Pallavi, and he's Kostuk. So today, welcome all for the Huddle event talk at Hubble. Uh, you all must be wondering, what is this huddle talk about, right? So, well, we started these talks right across in the Innovation Center, and uh, we got many feedback from people who, have, who were attending these talks, and uh, that we should reach to the wider audience, you know. So, here we are with our full-fledged huddle talk today. Today, we have a very eminent personality with us, Dr. V. A. Shiva who is an inventor of email, a polymath, and a world-renowned system scientist who has bagged many awards, patents, and inventions so far. And uh, just to give a brief introduction about Dr. Shiva, uh, uh, in the early 80s, at the age of just 14 years old, he has invented, uh, he has come up with an uh, electronic system uh, which uh, has totally replaced the inter-office mailing system. So, and calling it as an email, which we all experience in our day-to-day -day life as a communication tool. And uh, he's also responsible for the internal uh, features involved in an email, say inbox, outbox, drafts, uh, say uh, folders, memos, etc. So, uh, he holds four degrees from MIT, and uh, he's also a very, uh, he's the first uh, outstanding scientist as well as technologist of Indian origin. And he's worked, he's done a lot of work in the uh, medical industry as well, medical. Uh, so uh, right in his childhood, he was in, inspired by his grandmother who practiced Siddha. So Siddha is the oldest uh, uh, system of practicing medicines in India. And uh, uh, from there, we uh, led him to a breakthrough idea of uh, system medicines. Uh, which is an integration platform to link uh, uh, Eastern as well as Western medicines. So, and uh, recently he has also invented Cytosolve, a technology which, uh, uh, which uh, we, by which we can create multi-combination of medicines without animal testing. So, without further wasting much time, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll start with the... Uh, with the interaction with Dr. Shiva, but before that we have an inter interesting uh, questions for you and we do have gifts for that as well. So Kostov will take a few questions for you and let's see who wins. So Thank over you, to Pallavi, you yeah. So uh, Pallavi, me and Uncle were talking with uh, Shiva over snacks and we thought why not start the evening before the formal interaction with him with a set of questions and answers. So we'll ask you some questions. I mean, looking at you, none of you appear to be asleep, which is usually the post-lunch scenario, but all of you seem quite excited and interested. So, uh, Shiva mentioned to us that, uh, <clears throat> okay, let me ask you first, that how many of you over here have email accounts? How many of you have email accounts? Yeah, well, everyone, so almost 100%. In the year 1992, Shiva was addressing an audience like this. And can you give me a rough estimate of what must be the percentage of people in that room who had email accounts? Sorry? Somebody said? 
Prasanna said 1%. Anyone else? Any guesses? Vivek is saying 7%. <clears throat> so, any more guesses? So, we'll give a round of applause to Prasanna because he's close to the answer. Uh, when did the word email come into existence? In, the, in which year? Sorry? 1982? Uh, no. 90? 1997? No, that's not the right answer. We'll be again applaud for the person who's closest because if you don't give the right answer. No, Prasanna, you're wrong this time, if you're saying 1998. 92, but someone said 1982, so I think let's applaud for him because 1978 is the correct answer. Okay, here's an interesting question. Where do you think more e-commerce takes place? Is it on social media or is it on email? May I ask somebody who's younger than 30 to answer this? Jesh, you are younger than 30. What do you think? Where does more e-commerce take place? On social media or on email? Yeah, so the correct answer is email and I intentionally ask somebody younger because they tend to think that it is still social media which is more active and alive. But the correct answer to this is email. Now this is just a little out of context, but who invented radio? Yes, J.C. Bose. And who is the person who answered this? Siddharth. Let's clap for Siddharth. <laughs> okay. Uh, does email need internet? Yes or no? Yeah, it doesn't because the local area network or the intranet as we call it is also sufficient for email to survive. And uh, this one won't get you any uh, claps. But the question is, who copyrighted email program? And the answer to that is, of course, the gentleman sitting here, Mr. Shiva Ayodhari. <clears throat> I would now be requesting Mr. Shiva Ayodhari to address the audience by his talk. And it's just a coincidence that uh, you still see the typewriter over here. The, just a week ago, we had the exhibit of the typewriter and unveiling of this sculpture. And people keep on saying that the typewriter is dead, the death of the typewriter. And I don't believe that things die so easily. And then recently I read an article in the Times of India by British Nandi, which was talking about death of email. So all these were basically forms of communication. And my still individual opinion is that email is not going to die and it's there to stay. And let's hear Shiva talk about it. Thank you. Okay, can everyone hear all right? So anyway, you know, um, I, uh, Pallavi, who is at Angkor, showed me your space earlier. So I just want to let you guys know that you are probably the luckiest people to be able to work here. I don't know if you're aware of that. The environment that Godrej has created for you is absolutely incredible. And I'm saying that because as an innovator, they've thought about, I'm not saying it's perfect, but the things that they've thought about to create a space 
where you can be open, inclusive. Uh, Paramesh and I were just talking about this concept of inclusivity, which I think Godrej probably uh, exemplifies probably more than any other company in India. And I'm, I'm telling you in a very, very deep, heartfelt way how powerful that is to have an environment of that in India. So it's my opinion I have that this company is probably going to add more to Indian innovation than any other company in India. And I think you should give your guys a hand. And I think it's particularly important because what I'm going to share with you, some of it's very radical stuff. Okay, some of it's going to talk about social issues, social barriers, and particularly the, uh, the issue here is that in 1978, a 14-year-old dark-skinned Indian boy did invent email in one of the poorest cities in the United States, and the issue is why is it not that many people know about this? And that starts peeling away some very interesting social issues which help really reignite the national identity of India and where the real source of innovation is. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Okay? So I'm going to sort of take you, can everyone see this? So I'm going to take you through a journey, and through this journey I'm going to share with you some innovations, but you will see there will be a guiding theme in this, and hopefully we can have some good discussion. But it is extremely timely that all these typewriters are here. Okay, and you'll see why it's, it's almost there's some, some of the gods are playing with us on the timing of this. Um, I don't know if you can see this. Can everyone see this over here? Yes? If you want, you can move here if it's better. But I grew up, you know, you talk about where the source of innovation comes from, and I believe it comes out of sometimes being exposed to multiple worlds. So I, I grew up in two worlds. You know, one world was Bombay. I was actually born in Chambud in 1963 on December 2nd, and my family moved, believe it or not, on, on, the, on my birthday to the United States. But I also grew up in two worlds in India. How many of you have experienced Indian villages? Anyone? Okay, so about 40%. So I actually grew up in a different world, which is, it's hard to see if the, because the lights are a little bit bright, but I also grew up in this other world. Can we? But, but I don't know if it'll, it'll help the film. Is it all right? Is it okay? Okay, well, yeah, if we can hit one. Is that better? Yeah. But I also grew up in another world, which is a deep Indian rural village, which are most of the scenes like this in a South Indian village. And my grandmother was uh, essentially a very poor rice farmer. You know, she worked in the fields for 16 hours a day. But on the weekends, and there's actually a picture of her, she, she practiced an ancient form of Indian medicine called Siddha. The problem is in India, most traditional forms of medicine are thought of as something less than you know, uh, conventional forms of allopathic medicine. But as a child, I saw her, she could observe your face, and based on that diagnosis, she could figure out what was going on inside your body. You know, today we spend a lot of money on MRIs, you know, um, blood chemistry, and still most doctors probably can't figure out what's going on, but, they, but you do get a nice big fat bill. But my grandmother was able to observe what was going on with your face, and based on that, she could diagnose you, and then she gave you therapies which were suited for you, what today we call personalized medicine. So you may have gotten a very different set of combination of ingredients or different asanas versus you. So this is called personalized medicine. So um, if you know about Indian medicine, anyone know about Ayurveda or Siddha? Anyone? Okay, so I'm going to give you a two-minute lesson, okay? So listen carefully. So 
in Ayurveda, you have this concept of purusha, which is the void. I'm going to throw a bunch of words at you, so I don't really want you to learn much, but more observe that there's a whole design philosophy here, and there's a whole innovation of observing existence, but there's a concept of the concept of nothingness, which was called purusha, and from that, you had the creation of everything manifest that you see around you, what was called prakriti, everything in the natural world, which meant matter, energy, etc. But in its first form, it gave rise to what are called the three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas. Again, these are, may seem foreign words, but essentially they meant flavors of energy. And those gave rise to what are called the panchabhutas, which were space, air, fire, water, and earth. Okay? And then these gave rise to another element called the tridoshas, which were essentially vath, pith, and kaf. Okay? Now, in the Ayurvedic tradition, typically a healer would look at you and characterize you into one of those categories or flavors of them, vata, pitta, pitta, kapha, etc. And then those tridoshas gave rise to the datus, which are known as tissues in your body, and those gave rise to your body, which manifested itself as mind, senses, and in the Indian system they had this concept of energy called the chakras, okay? Now, any Westerner looking at this, they probably say this is a bunch of garbage, this is snake oil, it doesn't mean anything. Right? Or for that matter, most Indians don't even bother to study this anymore. But if you look at this, there is a whole lingua franca here. Right? There's a whole uh, way of looking at the world, which is very different than looking at it as genes, proteins, biochemical pathways. But that's, what, that's the system that my grandmother used, which to us may seem very, very foreign. So I was very interested in understanding, even as a child, how was this woman with no degrees, with tattoos on her arms, be able to heal people. So that's, that was really my motivation, my inspiration, pretty much for doing anything I do today. Now, my grandmother also brought me up on other things. She brought me up, you know, as I sit on her lap, she'd teach me the great stories of Ramayana, right, or the Mahabharata, and, you know, about loyalty, fighting for right, good versus evil. But you have to understand, I also grew up in an India, which was, I was, you know, I think they have the caste system still today. I was considered a lower caste, untouchable. So I also was very aware of that in some of the ways that I was treated even as a child. So this other part of me was very motivated not only in medicine, but to understand why there was this class differences or caste differences as a whole. So these were the two motivations for this very young, you know, five to six-year-old boy. So my heroes were people like this, right? Or people like Crazy Horse, Che, because I wanted to understand why there was also differences and injustice in the world. So it was not only a kid who was interested in medicine and the innovation of the indigenous system, but also a kid who was deeply moved by why there was differences in the world. So when my family, there's a picture of them, too bad you can't see them, but when we came to the United States, it's 1970 now. How many people have been to the U.S.? Wow, very few. Incredible. But you have to understand, 1970, anyone know what 1970 was, what occurred in the 60s in the United States? The Vietnam War had come. The United States had been in Vietnam fighting an imperialist battle. They had lost. And you had a huge dichotomy in the United States. You had sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And we moved into one of the poorest cities in the United States called Patterson, New Jersey. So if you want to talk about segregation, at least in India you have poor and rich people sort of living together. In the United States, the poor are sort of segregated into a different world. So Patterson was like that. And what happened to me was, I was very ambitious and I wanted to, I was very motivated by this desire to learn medicine and understand these differences. So by the time 
I was 14, I had completed all the math courses in my high school. And in, in 1978, there was a visionary professor at a university called New York University. And he had a vision that one day we would need computer programmers, software engineers. So 40 students were given this opportunity, selected to go to NYU from the high school. And I was one of the 40 selected, the only Indian in 1978. So here this 14-year-old kid used to take the train from, New York, from Newark all the way to New York. And if you've been to New York at that time, it was very crime-ridden. And the thought of a young kid going back and forth on the train was almost not well thought of. But that's what I did. I graduated top of the class, and I wanted to drop out of high school. For an Indian parent, that's nightmare. Um, so my mom was working at a small medical college. And I think one of the questions that was asked was, um, you see, before the internet, there was networks, and they were called local area networks. So in a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, again, a very poor city in the United States, primarily African-American, I met an interesting physicist. His name was Les Michelson. Now, Les was very interesting. Here was a guy in his mid-30s, uh, very open to innovation. In this small medical college, he'd set up a, a wide area network between Newark, New Brunswick, and Piscataway. And in that wide area network, Les was very interested in building new kinds of software applications. He also was doing medical research on how to use computing. So remember, I was interested in medicine. The area that I was interested in was, in those days, babies, and still do, die in their sleep. There's a disease called SIDS. Has anyone heard of the sudden infant death syndrome? And what's interesting with, with babies is they actually have six states of sleep. Adults have five, and the, and the interesting thing is these babies would suddenly have a heart attack and they die. So I was interested in using my math knowledge and my areas in computing to actually figure out if you could predict the onset, what we today call big data. But Michelson had a different job for me. He wanted me to do something more interesting. You see, in those days you had this person, uh, a woman in, who was a secretary. There were only three jobs in the 1970s that a woman could really do, except from being a housewife. Secretary, nurse, or teacher. Okay? Now when you think about this, who used computers in the 1970s? It was typically old white men with typically a white shirt in a white lab coat, in a computer, if you can think about it, that filled this room. It was called mainframe computer, so think about that. So it's typically white men, technical people who use these large mainframe computers. The thought of this woman, a secretary, ever even using a computer was inconceivable. You follow what I'm saying? It was unheard of. Because the barrier to entry was so great, you had to know a programming language, you had to know cryptic codes, there's no easy user interface, etc. That was the environment of the 1970s. Now, if you look on this woman's desktop, she had the typewriter, okay? And she was tied to that typewriter. In many ways, she was enslaved to that typewriter. She, her job, uh, eight hours a day, was sitting at that typewriter, and on that desktop was not only a typewriter, there was a an actual box called an inbox. There was another box called an outbox. Underneath her desk was a trash bin. On her desktop was an address book. Behind her, as you see here, are file folders. You get the idea? Now, this was not just pieces. This was a system. I think one of the philosophies that you're trying to promote in the innovation area is design and system syncing, right? Holism. That entire desktop was an engine of communication. And like this in that 
in that environment, in that medical school, was a thousand little mini secretaries with their little microcosm of systems. And they would communicate using what was known as the memo. Okay, again, it may seem easy for us to understand. It had memorandum on top. It was very structured. You had to have a to, I don't know if there's to, from, subject, um, the body. Sometimes she would attach that with a paper clip to a document that was called an attachment. Carbon copy literally meant carbon copy. They would take a piece of paper in the typewriter, put a piece of carbon, another paper, and you type it. You follow? So you have to understand, again, I I'm going to keep using the word a system because I'm a systems guy. And if you didn't have the inbox on the desktop, that system did not work. If you didn't have the outbox, no mail went out. If you didn't have the address book, you would address it the wrong way because addresses were constantly changing. So this was a, it was a system of interconnected parts and it was called the inner office mail system. Now, she would put this document in a very particular envelope called the inner office mail envelope. She would tie it together and, and off it would go. In fact, I don't know if you've seen these, they had these things called pneumatic tubes, okay? And secretary sometimes sat together. And this was called the inter-office mail system, okay? Anyone ever seen this? It's pretty cool, right? This is how, that's why the typewriter is fascinating that it's here, but this was how offices ran from businesses to the offices of prime ministers all over the world. But the secretary was at the heart of it. And that secretary, all the time a woman, was relegated to that task. Her boss was her superior, would tell her what to do, and he would dictate to her and she would write drafts. So that was the system. So I was asked to convert this system to the electronic form. It was a pretty big challenge. And I know when I, Chotukul, right? The, so it's a very, the, the refrigerator that you guys have made, it's a fascinating innovation journey because that's very similar. You can relearn lessons from this because that 14-year-old boy had to interview these women to really understand their needs. What did they need? It had to be easy to use. They weren't going to move from the typewriter to the keyboard if it wasn't easy to use. It had to have all those features in it. And that's what I did. So this, was, this came in the local newspaper in 1980. But the interesting thing is if you look carefully, I called it email, E-M-A-I-L. Now, if you look at the code there, it's a Fortran code. Now, why did I call it email? The Fortran language in those days only allowed six characters. All had to be in uppercase. And the operating system, today you have iOS or Android, the app's names could only be five characters. So it's, it was not an obvious term because the term electronic mail had been around since the 1800s which broadly referred to sending any kind of electronic message. In fact, a telegraph was thought of as an electronic mail fax, but this referred to the system. It was the process. Inbox, outbox, folders, that entire system. That's what email is. And that's what got defined by this 14-year-old boy in 1978. Now, the legal issues are fascinating. I know as an innovation company, whatever you innovate, you have to somehow legally protect it, right? You're constantly dealing with IPR issues. Well, in 1978, uh, what were the IPR issues for protecting software? Any idea? There was none. Because no one knew what software was. Was it a physical thing like this or was it written text? So there was no laws. In fact, the Supreme Court didn't even know how to process software patents. However, I ended up going to MIT in 1981. 
By the way, when I went to MIT on the front page of MIT, they talked about three kids, and one of them was me who'd invented this email system, but I never thought a lot about it. But that year, I was also elected student body president. I had dinner with the president of MIT, and he said, Shiva, it's unfortunate you can't uh, patent software, you should copyright it. So that's the official copyright for email, August 30th, 1982, that the US Copyright Office issued me. And I remember, I didn't have lawyers, parents who were lawyers, I, there was no Google, you had to write away for the form, you filled it out, so that's actually my handwriting, but that's the official copyright for email. So, so copyright became the only way to protect software because in 1976 the only way to protect software was, uh, not software, written work or music was through the Copyright Act of 1976. In 1980 the US government changed that law to become the Software Act of 1980. So that's what became the official recognition of uh, the inventor of email. So that was the story of the 1982. Now what's fascinating is I went on to MIT, forgot about this. Because if you're, as many of you know, if you're seriously an artist or an inventor, you're not thinking about fame or fortune, particularly a 14 year old kid. You're not thinking about, unless you're Bill Gates and you have your parents who are also lawyers, okay, but that's a different issue. But my parents weren't that. So I went off to MIT, did four degrees, and then what happened was in, um, 2011, my mom was dying of pulmonary fibrosis. This is now 35 years later. And a suitcase, she had saved all of this stuff, beautifully organized, all the computer code, all the tapes. And a friend of mine, a professor of media at Emerson College came by and he said, Shiva, you invented email, why haven't you spoken to anyone about it? And he then subsequently invited a friend of his who wrote this first article, that's my mom, by the way, um, who wrote this first article and then Doug Amet, the technology editor, Time Magazine came. He spent about three weeks reviewing it and he wrote this article in Time called The Man Who Invented Email. After that, I was gonna donate all of this to MIT Museum because it was getting old in my home. MIT looked at it and they said, no, no, it doesn't really belong here. It really belongs in the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian, as you may know, is one of the biggest institutions where Thomas Alva Edison's light bulb is and Alexander Graham Bell's phone is. So it went into the Smithsonian and this interesting, a young uh, reporter uh, for the Washington Post wrote this article saying V.A. Shiva honored as the inventor of email. Should have been a day for celebration, right? But what's interesting is um, you see a fascinating event take place all over the internet. You see articles come out calling me all sorts of names. And I want you to all look at this. This one comes out on a blog. And remember, this is 2012, where you think in the United States, racism has gone away. And it says, basically, this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged by his dhoti. Unbelievable. Now, you got to understand, I was able to look at this, and I had to sort of move emotionally from the state. Because what I didn't share with you, and by the way, this is an interesting article that came, a Wikipedia editor wrote to me and he says, you know, I seem to have stepped into a, a mess by accident. As an experienced Wikipedia editor, I had a look at the email article, this is on Wikipedia, and was surprised that you hadn't received credit for your contributions. Since I've had a great deal of experience writing Wikipedia articles, I got right to work and added several suitable additions to provide credit to your contributions. Right away, my edits were deleted without discussion not edited to improve them, but just flat out deleted. This is a kind of behavior an editor encounters 
When editing an article on the Second Amendment, abortion, or other extremely hot topics, the response to my edits have included personal attacks calling me ignorant, reckless, and the like. This is where our story begins on innovation. It's not about who invented email, because the facts, as Noam Chomsky later said, are black and white. The issue is why was there this, this kind of vitriol in 2012? So let's start. Who is behind this? Well, you see, we talk about Indian corruption. American corruption is very systemic. It's sort of deeply ingrained. There's a collusion between academia, in many ways, between industry and the military. Indian politicians are frankly newborn babes compared to American politicians. And I mean that very seriously. So this organization is a history organization, computer historians. Well, it turns out they're actually very closely aligned to a company called Raytheon. Anyone heard of Raytheon? Yes? One of the largest military defense companies in the United States. What I hadn't known was, in 2009, Raytheon started rebranding themselves. By the way, anyone know branding here? Marketing and brand? What's their logo here? The at symbol, right? It's like the Nike logo. So they had Madison Avenue's tall shot. This guy looks like an inventor, right? Nice beard, glasses. Almost like a casting call they pulled this guy. His name is Ray Tomlinson. What he had done was do exchange of text messages, rudimentary, 15-minute code change, he even admitted. So they had taken him, rebranded their company as the inventors of email. Why? Because Raytheon had entered the cybersecurity business and they wanted to brand themselves as the inventors of email. So when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, I set off a rat's nest, a hornet's nest, because they had already written the history about who invented email, and it sure can be a 14-year-old kid from Newark, New Jersey. That sort of breaks up many narratives that have been set up on what innovation is. So that's where the source of this was.